Well, this morning is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And perhaps no other image has been more reproduced in human history than the image of Jesus dying on the cross. Author Brian Zond estimates that the crucifixion of Jesus has been painted, sculpted, carved, and molded billions of times. We see crucifixes and crosses in churches on top of mountains, made into jewelry, tattooed on people's bodies. It's not an overstatement to say that the image of Jesus dying on the cross is the most reproduced image in human history. And yet perhaps because it's so common for us, it fails to shock us anymore. Because crucifixion was, after all, a way to kill people. The ancient Romans used crucifixion to terrorize subjects of the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was reserved for rebellious slaves, military deserters, and failed revolutionaries. During Rome's time as an empire, the Roman government crucified hundreds of thousands of people. For instance, after the failed slave revolt led by Spartacus in the first century before Christ, Rome crucified 6,000 slaves all at once. And crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Victims were publicly stripped of their clothing, Their hands and feet were either tied or nailed to a cross and then their body hoisted up so onlookers could watch them slowly die. And that death usually came very slowly in the form of suffocation. And then the body was left in public view as a reminder that everyone could see what would happen to people who resisted Roman imperial power. In the upper-class Roman society, it was considered taboo to even speak about crucifixion publicly. And yet soon after Jesus was crucified, the early Christians began making images and writing songs about the cross. What a strange thing to do. I mean, could you imagine families of the people executed in 18th century France writing songs and singing songs about guillotines? Or black families in the South displaying artwork of lynching trees on the walls of their dining rooms? Or families who've lost loved ones to gun violence wearing necklaces of a gun around their neck? To even suggest these things seems inconceivable to us. And yet the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the entire Christian message is summarized as the word of the cross. Today on this first Sunday of Lent, we enter into a journey towards Easter. Lent is patterned after the Old Testament Day of Atonement, an annual season where the people of God would would repent of their sins and renew their covenant promises to God 
And so Lent is a time for us to reflect on our own mortality, to repent of our own sins, and to prepare for our celebration of Easter in six weeks. And our Lenten series this year is called The Greatness of the Cross. How did this symbol of violence become a symbol of greatness? What exactly did the cross accomplish? That's what we're going to explore over the next few weeks. And today we're going to start by looking at the cross as the great ransom. So I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand as we hear the words of Scripture from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed them were afraid. Again, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the ruler, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. This scene from the life of Jesus seems like a good place to begin talking about the greatness of the cross because it challenges us to redefine what we mean by greatness. Jesus and his 12 are traveling towards the city of Jerusalem. And as they make their way towards the city, for the third time in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his suffering. He will be condemned by the religious leaders, turned over to the Romans for crucifixion. But three days later, he will rise from the dead. 
The apostles don't understand what this means. Two of his apostles, two brothers, James and John, approached Jesus privately with a special request to sit at his right and his left when he is lifted up in his glory. James and John sense greatness in Jesus, and they want a share of that greatness for themselves. They want power. Thank you. Feeling a little froggy this morning. They want power and authority when Jesus is glorified. The other 10 apostles are upset when they hear about James and John's request, probably because they didn't think of asking Jesus first. But Jesus tells James and John that they don't understand what they're asking. Because you see, his glory is the cross. In John chapter 12, when the time of Jesus' crucifixion arrives, Jesus says in John 12, 23, now is the time for me to be glorified. If you want to see his glory, don't look for a palace or for a throne. Look to the blood-stained cross. And asking to sit at Jesus's right and left in his glory is tantamount to asking to be crucified at his right and left. They didn't understand the cup of suffering. He was about to drink the baptism of blood. He was about to experience. They would suffer, yes, they would, but not like Jesus suffered. So Jesus uses the opportunity to redefine what we mean by greatness. In every society, including our own society, greatness is determined by power, the ability to get people to do what you want them to do. Great people are the rulers and leaders, the celebrities and the influencers, the presidents and the politicians. The more power you have, the greater you are. This is how every society defines greatness. But not so with you, Jesus says. Not so with you. Greatness for followers of Jesus is determined by service, not strength. Ministry, not mastery. Greatness is defined by serving the needs of other people rather than getting other people to serve your needs. This is the redefinition of greatness, according to Jesus. And that brings us to verse 45, that Jesus even didn't come to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for people. The cross is great because it's an act of service. But what exactly does he mean when he says that his life was given as a ransom? A ransom is a price that's paid to release someone being held captive against their will. Back then, people paid a ransom to free slaves, to release hostages who'd been kidnapped to liberate prisoners of war who'd been captured in battle, 
The Bible often uses the word redeem and redemption to describe this process. Jesus understood his redeeming death as a ransom. The cross is the great ransom. So let's explore and unpack a little bit about how this might work. The word ransom suggests that we are all captive. Captive to sin, evil, and death. We are captive to sin. According to the Bible, we are prisoners of sin. Our own sins, the sins of our parents and grandparents, the sins of our nation, the sins of our ancestors, going all the way back to our very first ancestors, Adam and Eve. We are held captive to the power of sin. We're also held captive to the unseen forces of evil in our world. Humanity is held captive to the lies and accusations of unseen spiritual forces of evil that are at work in our world. And often these unseen spiritual forces work through human institutions like governments and businesses and corporations and even churches to hold people captive, and we're held captive to death, physical death, and eventually eternal death, eternal separation from God after we die. This is the human condition, and we willingly participate in our own captivity. Have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome before? Stockholm Syndrome is a phenomenon where hostages being held captive develop a psychological bond with their captors and begin to willingly participate in their own captivity. According to FBI statistics, 8% of kidnapping victims develop symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome. Well, we've all developed a kind of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome to our captivity to sin, evil, and death. We do things that enslave us even further. We repeat to ourselves the lies our captors are telling us. This is the human condition. And so God launches a rescue mission. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit launched something like an Air Force CSAR, which is short for Combat Search and Rescue Mission. God the Father sends God the Son into occupied enemy territory. And in so doing, the Son, who is already equal to the Father, already fully God, added to himself a fully human nature in order to enter occupied territory. The immortal Son became mortal. The powerful son became weak and vulnerable, and the Holy Spirit empowers God's son to carry out this combat search and rescue mission. God initiates a rescue to free captive humanity. And in that rescue, Jesus offers himself for our release like hostage negotiators who volunteer themselves in exchange for release of hostages. Jesus volunteers himself to the captors in our place. He offered himself as a ransom. 
and the spiritual forces of evil jumped at the opportunity. God's own son, who's now mortal and vulnerable because of his human nature in exchange for the human race. What better hostage could Satan hold captive than God himself? Who better to kill than God himself? And the powers of evil accepted the exchange, believing if the son of God was taken off the table, it would be game over for God. But then God turned the tables by raising Jesus from the dead. By surrendering his life to death, Christ conquered death. By going into the depths of Hades, the domain of judgment after death, Jesus kicked down the doors of Hades. And what Satan and the powers of evil thought would be their ultimate victory actually turned out to be their final defeat. And there are several verses in the Bible that describe this. Consider what John says in, in, or what Jesus says in John chapter 12, right before his crucifixion. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, it's a reference to Satan, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then the author of John's gospel adds, Jesus said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The cross was God's judgment on the world. But not a judgment of fire and brimstone, not a judgment of plagues or wrath. God's judgment on the world was God subjecting God's own self to death. God giving God's own self over to evil. God's judgment on the world would come in the shape of the cross. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he judged the world. He defeated Satan and the powers of evil, and he began to draw all people, to invite all people to himself. Here's another example of this idea from Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood God's wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We think of the rulers of this age as political rulers, kings and queens, senators, presidents, prime ministers. But in the Bible, this phrase rulers of this age usually describes unseen spiritual forces of evil that are at work behind the scenes. Working behind the scenes of the religious power structures that condemned Jesus to death and working behind the scenes of the political power structures that crucified Jesus were these unseen spiritual forces, these rulers of this age. And Paul says that if these spiritual forces had truly understood God's wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, they never would have crucified Jesus. Why? Because the cross was their defeat. It was the great ransom. Finally, we see the same thing in Colossians 
Paul writes, having disarmed the principalities and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Just like the phrase rulers of this age, the phrase powers and authorities consistently in the New Testament describes these unseen spiritual forces of evil. These spiritual forces intended the crucifixion of Jesus to be the son of God's public humiliation as he was publicly stripped of his clothing, brutally nailed to a cross, hoisted up for all to see and left to slowly die a slave's death. But Paul says the cross was indeed a public humiliation, but not of Jesus, but of the powers of evil. They were unmasked, disarmed. The cross was Christ's great triumph. Now, if you've read any of C.S. Lewis's writings, this may sound familiar to you. Lewis's writings, especially his fiction, are filled with this idea of the cross as the great ransom, especially his children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. But the cross as the great ransom was also the primary way that Christians talked about the cross for the first 1,000 years of church history. It's not the only way to understand the cross, but it's a foundational way, which is why we're starting with this view of the cross as a ransom in this series on the first Sunday in Lent. So what does this mean for us today? I can think of four implications. First, the cross does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The cross does what we cannot do. We cannot save ourselves from sin, evil, and death. Without a ransom, we are hopelessly captive with no hope of release. You see, sin is not merely something we do. Sin is also a power that enslaves us. And during the season of Lent, we often reflect on the ways that sin is still enslaving us. What addictions still rage within us? What habits have we developed that lead us to do hurtful and sinful things to other people without even thinking about it? How are we still captive to the sins of other people that they've committed against us? Now, I'll admit, these are not pleasant questions to ask ourselves. Honestly, many of us would rather avoid spending time sitting with these kinds of questions. But that's part of the wisdom of Lent. That's part of the wisdom of carving out a season every year to sit with these kinds of questions. Because we cannot save ourselves. The cross is a great ransom. Second, as a ransom, the cross reveals that God loves us enough to rescue us. God loves us enough to rescue us. The cross shows us what God is really like. The cross is a window into the very heart and nature of God. In, a, in the cross, we see a God who's willing to submit his whole self to the suffering of sin. In the cross, we see a God who's willing to give himself over 
to the power of evil. In the cross, we see a God who's willing to experience firsthand the agony of death. We see a God who's willing to venture even into the darkest reaches of hell itself to rescue captive humanity. The cross reveals God as the great rescuer. God loves us enough to rescue us. Third, as a great ransom, the cross proves that God is committed to overcoming evil. God is committed to it. See, once God's good creation became infected by sin, evil, and death, God could have destroyed it and started over. Or God could have just washed his hands of creation and let it destroy itself. But instead, God decided to redeem it. Now, granted, there's still a lot of evil in our world today. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We see evil at work in the structures and institutions of every society around the world. We see it in hatred and violence and war and greed. We saw it this last week when I received word of the shooting in Kansas City, Missouri at an event that my daughter was at. And the frantic fear I felt until I found out she was safe. There's still a lot of evil in our world. But the cross proves that God is committed to vanquishing evil. The cross unmasked and disarmed the powers of darkness in our world. The cross was the great victory that will someday become final. The cross was the great ransom. And finally, fourth, as a ransom, the cross shows us that God's victory comes in unexpected ways. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the world views the message of the cross as foolishness. In ancient Judaism, anyone whose dead body was hung up on a tree was considered to have died under the curse of God. And in Rome, crosses were reserved for slaves, deserters, and failed revolutionaries. This was hardly a selling point for the early Christians as they sought to share their faith. If anything, the early Christians should have hidden the fact that they worshiped a crucified Christ. I mean, that's what any public relations uh, firm would have recommended that they do. Just gloss it over. Just, just ignore that part. But instead, the early Christians put the cross at the very center of their message. To be ashamed of the cross is to empty the good news of Jesus of its power, says Paul. Because God's victory comes in unexpected ways. God's victory comes just when the world thinks that God has lost. God's victory comes when evil is cheering that it has won. Because once again, greatness is not determined by how much power you have or how many people you influence. If that's still how we're thinking about greatness, we're not thinking about it the way Jesus does. The great victory came through what appeared to be the greatest defeat. The folly of the cross was the ransom. 
I was watching a series on Netflix last weekend and, and I saw a show about a wealthy billionaire whose wife was kidnapped. And the kidnappers demanded that the billionaire pay billions of dollars as a ransom for his wife. Otherwise, they said that they would kill her. Well, it turns out that the billionaire and his wife were having really bad marital problems. And so he paused on the phone and then said no and hung up. Well, the wife was able to escape her kidnappers. And when she shows up back at alive at their hotel room, the husband is overjoyed to see her. He, he tells her that now that she's safe, he realizes how much he loves her and how much he wants to be with her. But of course, it was too late because he refused to pay a costly price for that love. He wouldn't pay a ransom. The cross is the great ransom because all humanity is captive. And God was willing to pay the costliest of all prices to ransom us from our captivity, his own life. And this is how an instrument of torture and death has become a symbol of greatness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Lord, foolishness to our world, a stumbling block, a scandal. And yet it is the means by which we are set free. Thank you for the cross. And as we journey through this season of Lent together, as we think about the ways that we still need to grow, the ways sin still entangles us, we are grateful for the cross. We give you praise that we are not alone, that we walk with the crucified God and that we walk with each other. Thank you for the great ransom. Amen.